following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I've said this on occasion before, but in case any of you are dull, I am not Stacy Potts. Um, I'm, said to, I'm, I'm told to tell you an apology, a big apology from Stacy. Probably only a few of you, well, it's, the number's dwindled here, so maybe some of you knew that I was going to be preaching. But um, Stacy did not tell anyone that he was going to be gone. Um, he was doing a surprise for his kids. They went to Williamsburg at the beginning of the week, so he took the week off. So if you have any complaints, you can tell him that he should have told you, or at least secretly or something like that. But um, he is gone in a way and enjoying time with his family, so we're really happy for him to be doing that. And I get an opportunity to, <clears throat> to look at the Word and to hopefully explain and talk about what has been so good for me and I'm eating every day here and thinking about Isaiah 36 and 37. So um, let me start from it, uh, Psalm 20, verse 7. It's very familiar, but let's, let's let this sink for a minute. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, imperfect people, who are marred by sin, who choose rebellion so often, who struggle um, to trust you, to love you, who love the things of the world. um, And at the core, we were enemies of you. That's just the truth. We didn't want to be under your rule. We didn't want anything to do with you. And you stepped in in your Holy Spirit's work in our, our hearts and turned us from death to life. God, this is a work that only you can do. And we thank you and we worship you this morning because you're the great God and there's nothing better than knowing you. And we know from your whole word and specifically Isaiah that there is none other. There's no one like you, God. So this morning we gather together to preach the gospel to each other through song, through word, through giving, through this time where we open your text and look and see, and hopefully we hear, God, from you today. Open our ears, Lord. Make us obedient. Help us to love you, to cherish you above all else. May you speak to me and us today as your people through your word. God, we, we hold no claim to anything Accept the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. We, we cherish that, Father, and we lift you high today and we ask that you would speak to our hearts and that you would make us more like Jesus Christ and that your name would be, would be magnified throughout the universe. You will do this thing and we trust you. We love you in Jesus' name. Do you know anyone, perhaps, that struggle with trust issues? A lot, I know a lot of people here are maybe, like, or there's been a f- couple that are um, maybe teachers or social workers. I'm not talking about, like, trust issues, like, with parents necessarily, or trust issues, like, that you would talk about on eHarmony or, you know, Christian Mingle. I'm talking about, like, real-life trust issues, uh, as in, the, like, what people actually place their trust and hope in. Do you know anyone, perhaps, that finds their value or fulfillment solely in their job or their work, what they do at work, and they find that to be what they they love to do? They found their niche, and they love it, and they're good at it, 
and they find their fulfillment in that. Or do you know perhaps maybe someone who trusts in their bank account or their Roth IRA or their savings plan or their emergency fund if there's any Dave Ramsey fans in here. Or do we know people, do I know someone maybe that, you know, hopefully one day I know my Aunt Penelope's going to die and I'll get her cash. Do I know anyone perhaps that trusts in something like that? Or do you know someone even maybe probably more realistically that trusts in themselves and they're very self-confident, they're very good at what they do and they can, they can navigate this life pretty well. Or uh, do, we, do you know anyone perhaps that trusts in government plans and humanitarian intervention and programs? Okay, maybe not very many of you believe that. But, uh, maybe I'm crazy to think of that, but I digress. Um, any of you that might see others in their lives trusting anything that's man-made or creaturely or worldly? I'm sure we do. And I know many people that do that. And perhaps I even struggle with those things myself. We are going to discuss, and well, not going to discuss because I'm just going to talk, actually, Um, because that's my job today. We're going to look at Isaiah 36 and 37, and this is going to address us and our hearts and our world and our understanding of where our trust actually should be. And I know you already already know, okay, I know God, duh, you know. We already read Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I know, we've heard it, I've heard it. Instead today, though, I've been thinking about this for weeks. And I, when I was reading through Isaiah, this one just struck me. And just so you know, this, this section, the story from 36, 36 to the end of 37, is a story that's also repeated, or actually, actually before. It's, it's in, um, we find it in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 32, and also in Kings, Second Kings 18 through 19. This full story, not just like pieces of it, the whole story is found in two other places in Scripture. So I'm reading along, I'm like, I should probably figure this out and know a little bit about it and see what's happening here. I've heard of the guy named Sennacherib. I've heard of, you know, the king of Assyria, and I've heard of Hezekiah. Everyone thinks there was a book of the Bible by him, but there's not. And everyone, either they either think it's like a book of the Bible or it's just the name of an Amish kid. Like, that's a, those are the two thoughts about, about Hezekiah. So today, because it was so impacting to me, I think it might be helpful for us to understand this story. And at the end, I want us to think through what it might mean for us today. And of course, I'm, I'm giving it away in one sense that we should be trusting God. It's in the bulletin. That's, that's the point. But let's get there first and talk about this and see what, what, what we uncover here. This is the Bible. It is the truth. And remember, as Stacy's talked about before, this is not supposed to be just a history lesson. It's not what we're just learning a history lesson. This is theological history. It's, it's proclaiming a point. The purpose isn't just to let us know a bunch of facts, da-da-da-da-da. Although if we look through the Assyrian records, we're going to find that this matches up. If we look through Egyptian records, we're going to see that this matches up with what's going on. If you look at the names that are, that are in here, they will, they will work around, and you can understand that this is a historical piece of, of literature, and it's also a piece of history. So the, the, it's, it certainly is historical. But let us today think about this as a story that tells more about God than it does about the nations and how he interacts and, and has created it to be this way. So, in the 14th year of Hezekiah, king of, king of Judah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah. He's coming against them. He's taken them. He's taken them for his own. He, and he is now occupying Judah overall. He is in the city of Lachish, probably a small town. He's taken this, and that's where he's taken up his residence. 
At this time, if you want to follow along here, you can. I'm going to try, though, as much as we can to tell this as a narrative actually how it is. Because probably when Isaiah read this, the people were like this, like just waiting to hear the next thing. So I'm going to try as much as I can to help us understand how it was originally presented. Because I know I'm boring at reading. So I'm going to try to stay away from that. This happens. He's in the city of Lachish, and he decides, he knows the big strong point in Judah is Jerusalem. He sends someone, the, the text calls the Rabshakeh, which is probably like a chief cupbearer or someone that's a high official, very important, that he trusts a great deal. And he sends, them, he sends him to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem, and the place it's called the Conduit of the Upper Field. This is, okay, if you want to look in verse 2. With a great army, he comes in. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to Eliakim, the son of Hezekiah. And then he talks about these three people, the representatives of Hezekiah. And he's ready to discuss what he has to say from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He comes to them and says this. Listen, do you really think that you could stand up against the king of Assyria, a major world power, who has laid waste all the other nations. None has been able to stand against him. Who do you think you are? His job, the Rabshakeh's job, is to come against Jerusalem and to devastate them by words. His job is to come talk them out of putting up a fight. His job is to come intimidate them, to make them feel like they're nothing and there's no way they could ever stand against the king of Assyria, the great Sennacherib. And you'll see flowery language, the great king. You'll see it over and over again, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib the Great. He's, he's, he's trying to build his kingdom, and he should. He's, doing, he's trying to be a, a, you know, an ambassador to crush their hopes and dreams that they have any chance at all to stand against the king, of Sennac- the king Sennacherib. He says to them three main things. I'm going to summarize this up. He says to them first, he says, who do you think you are? Who do you trust in? Would you literally trust in this people, Egypt? Why have you rebelled against us? Now, there's a little bit of backstory here. They did rebel a little bit against Assyria because there was, there was an Assyrian alliance with Judah. But as time went on, Judah backed off, and they began to get a little buddy-buddy with Egypt. Egypt could supply horses. Egypt had a lot of other resources. And they started to become quite good friends, if you will, with Egypt. So Assyria makes the claim, what are you doing putting your trust in Egypt? Egypt can't hold you. Egypt can't secure you. I love the illustration he gives. He says, Egypt is like a bo- broken reed. that If you were to, to, to push on it, it will snap and pierce your hand. They will end up, if you trust in them, they will end up hurting you more. It's not worth your time to, step on, to, to, to lean on them, literally. But then he asks another question. And do you think that the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, will save you? Why would you think that? Hezekiah has taken all the altars down in the whole land. How stupid. For an Assyrian, you've got to remember, their pantheon of gods, the more altars you had, the more obeisance you paid to your gods, the stronger you were, the stronger the gods were, their presence there, they were more happy with you so they would be able to maybe help you out in a fighting manner. But Hezekiah, what had he done? We know from other historical books that he had centralized worship to Jerusalem. He had taken away all the altars, which we think is a good thing because the Lord commanded it. But to him, to, to, to the Assyrians, it was like, you're so stupid. Why would you lean on Egypt or trust in the Lord God who's centralized into one city? That that's where his worship is. You're so stupid. Then he says, well, let me make a wager with you. What if I were to give you 2,000 horses to help you out? Without, you, know, you couldn't even put riders on them, let alone 
put like a fight up against us. Judah is notorious for being bad with cavalry. They have no cavalry. They're terrible at fighting. Probably one, most and mainly, they've relied on God. But this is a different time. We're moving forward and, and, and they're, they're outside of that realm of thinking. And now they're like, oh, who should we, who, who should we depend on? And the Rabshakeh is very, very crafty. And he's like, we, we, I give you 2,000 horses. You guys don't even know how to ride them, let alone fight us. I have, a, I have this huge army with me. What are you going to do? Then the last thing, I want us to actually read these words because I think it's really good. Verse 10, all right? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Whether he knows it or not, he is fulfilling a prophecy from earlier in Isaiah because Isaiah has told them a word from the Lord that they would be struck with the Syrians. The Syrians would come upon them and they would destroy them. Two different sections, and it's very explicit. The language is very, very explicit. And it's, it's saying that you will be destroyed by Assyria. Whether the Rabshakeh actually knew that or not, you can imagine the force this would hit Jerusalem with. Because they knew that's what was going to happen, or that's what was told. And once this like random, not fulfilled yet prophecy from Isaiah is like staring them in the face, and it's staring them in a destructive manner, like they'll be wiped out. So this is very, like, very compelling, very compelling. Um, then the three, the three representatives that we hear, the, the, the names that they, they go by here are Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. They talk back to the rabbis and say, hey, 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 hey. It's like, hey, look, just quiet for just a minute. <laughs> Could you not speak in the language of Judah? Could you speak in Aramaic so the people on the wall can't hear you? This is on a big wall, remember. Let me stop for a minute. This is, another, this is another little piece of irony. He's standing at this, this conduit of the upper pool. It's the aqueduct that's feeding the city, the, that's feeding water. The, literally, the life of this city is coming. Ju- Jerusalem is very well fortified. It's a good place to hunker down. But this great army comes, and they're most likely sitting outside at this place where they could easily divert this aqueduct, or they could destroy it, or something. So they, they stand at a real position of like threat and authority. You got to remember also they don't they don't want to do that they want to take it over easily and get it and get it over with and have them just capitulate to them and be done. Um, the, so what what the three three representatives are like I, we don't we don't want the people to know about this really like let's just keep this on our terms let's be diplomatic about it. let's speak French if you will like let's let's do that so that everyone else can't hear you I don't mean it any weird way I mean a diplomacy the language of diplomacy that's what it, that's what literally who's saying. The response is so pointed. The Rabshika says, why would I do that? And in his intensely grotesque, eloquent language says, why should I spare these people when they're going to be the ones that eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Let that sit with you. That's disgusting. That, that's, that's what they're hearing. He's saying that in the language of the people, they're hearing it on the wall going, like this is, this is, this is not, like, and terrified also. It's not like we're going to make it quick and slit everyone's throats and it'll be over. Like, they're going to, we'll, we'll wait them out. We'll, we'll make your lives miserable and disgusting, and you will be very unhappy. <laughs> this is not something that you want. That's what the Rabshka is trying to let them know. And then he begins another speech. He starts again in verse 13. He stands, he calls out. This time he kind of, like, backs up so that more of the wall can hear him and says, listen up. So he's talking to all of them this time. He says that this is what the great king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. 
Don't you dare let him deceive you or trust in this God of his. You really think that he can stand up against the king of Assyria? And really goes to me back into the same sort of rhetoric and says, none of these other gods have ever made it. None of these other cities who said their gods would save them have been able to stand. We destroyed them. They're nothing. We can stamp them out like coals. Dun, 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 dun. We, we have ultimate power, and none of these gods can stand. What makes you, Jerusalem, think that you could even stand against us? And why would you even try? The response from the people and from the, and the three representatives of Hezekiah is interesting. Silence. And the text tells us it's because Hezekiah told them to be silent. I'm sure that must have been frustrating for the Rabshakeh. Like, he's, like, mounted this incredible argument and like he's hoping probably like to have them to squeal and be like, I don't know, yeah, yeah, we'll give it up, you know. But they're quiet. And the three representatives go back to Hezekiah with torn clothes and report what's happened. Now, why the torn clothes? That's important for us to understand. Maybe feel like, I don't know many of you that tear your clothes like when things happen, maybe like playing flag football. Yeah, I understand. But like, uh, like just tearing them after church or something or uh, I, I don't, we don't understand that. Tearing clothes specifically here is referring to um, like devastation and specifically blasphemy. A, a New Testament example of this, remember when, when Jesus says, I am, in front of Caiaphas, what does Caiaphas do? He shreds his garments because he he's appalled. It's blasphemous. How could you say that you're God? The same thing is probably happening here. They're, they can't believe that this person would be this audacious to say this kind of stuff about their God. And, would, and rub it in their faces as if God had no power. And if, as if he was like this little idol that everyone else worships. This is the God of Israel. So the, the, the response is, is very much of like this is blasphemous. Hezekiah doesn't, Hezekiah the king, now you come to Hezekiah. They tell him what's happening. What Rabshakeh just told him. And he responds in a couple ways. The first thing he does, he tears his garments. So he, he recognizes blasphemy. The second thing, put, listen to this, he puts on sackcloth. Again, I didn't know what sackcloth was. I thought it was S-A-T cloth. Like, like what is sackcloth? But sackcloth is, uh, is, is, represents three things. It represents mourning. You like mourning clothes, like dark. It represents repentance. And it represents um, humiliation. He recognizes in his response, in his whole posture, his whole response is that he understands that he's been doing something wrong. And he is at this point of utter humiliation and that he needs to turn. There's something here that he understands that he's in the wrong. And we'll get to that. He then goes to the house of the Lord. And then he sends his, three, his representatives to talk to Isaiah. And he says, maybe Isaiah will listen to us and plead our case to God. And he, and he has them pray and asks, and asks these things that he might deliver them. I just want us to also highlight a couple of things. Look at verse 4 and 37 real quick. It may be, this is his prayer, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. I want you to notice one other thing here. Whose Lord is it in this text? Take a look. Who is he referring to when he says, your God, your Lord? It's Isaiah. He recognizes that he is not in any position in one sense in close enough relationship to ever approach God at this point. Remember, who is he put his place and trust in? 
remember Egypt? He, he was looking towards Egypt for his like, alliance, for their power, for their resources. Before that, actually his father, and this is a huge parallelism I wish we could get into. His father, Isaiah, stands at the exact same place as this Rabshakeh did. And we're going back to chapter 7. Just stay with me for a minute. Go back to chapter 7. And this is the exact same place at this condo upper, upper pool near the washer's field where Isaiah says, don't fear. Don't be afraid of these people who are coming against you. And instead, Ahaz is Hezekiah's father, the king. Hezekiah, what we're talking about here, his father decided not to do that. And instead, he made an alliance with Assyria. So they're, they're on a track already of not trusting God. They're trusting Assyria. Then Hezekiah got a little smarter, and he started breaking some things down. But then he started like trusting in Egypt. And now he realizes, he's come to the point where this, the Rabshakeh is, is representing, representing Sennacherib and saying, I'm going to destroy you. He realizes his problem. His problem is not his military weakness. His problem is his lack of trust and hope in God. And rather, he's misplaced his trust and his hope and put it in these things, a broken reed that will pierce his hand and hurt him worse than if he would have leaned on it at all. Responding in sackcloth and ashes, calling out to the Lord your God, Isaiah, and see what he will do. Isaiah answers. Now we're into verse 6. Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Notice that Isaiah doesn't pray, actually. He had been praying. (laughs) Isaiah is like, you got to remember, Isaiah is the one that's faithful constantly the way that Israel should be and Judah should be interacting with God. Isaiah is doing that job all throughout the book of Isaiah and all throughout the historical books as well. That's what he's doing. He doesn't, he doesn't go to God and pray like he asked him to. Rather, he knows. He says, don't be afraid. Trust God. Don't be afraid. These people will be turned around by Yahweh, and they will return to their own country. And Sennacherib, this great king with pomp, he will get back and he will, he will die by the sword in his own land. Okay. This is episode one. All right? This is a capstone. Next verse. All right, let's move into this. Scene change, if you will. All right, we're at play. Scene change here. Verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned. He went back to, to the king, to King Sennacherib, to King of Assyria, to, to whether it's to report, whether it's to get his next commands, for whatever reason, to bring maybe more army there. I, we don't really know. It's not said. He goes back to Lachish. King of Assyria, Sennacherib, is not there. He's actually at Libna. He's moved up towards Jerusalem. He takes over. Libna is probably a small town. He's probably going to crush it really quickly so he can have a better advantage to get towards Jerusalem. At this time, though, and this is interesting, I didn't know why the text like, inserts this, why Isaiah writes this, but it says that at this time, the king of Assyria heard that Tirica, who's the king of Cush, or what we, uh, at the time that's where he was from in this province, but he was the king of Egypt, he was coming and he had, he had said, his intel told him that they were coming against the king of Assyria to fight. So you're like, why? What does that matter? Who cares? It matters because Sennacherib now is at a position where he's kind of in the middle. Jerusalem, where he wants to take, which would be the, that would, that would, that would give him all of Judah. If he were to take that, it'd be over. But he doesn't have them yet. He's sent the Rabshakeh, but now he's getting rumblings that the Egyptian army is coming up. Now he'll be fighting on two fronts. Maybe he could, he might be able to do it, but he surely doesn't want to. 
I mean, I'm, I'm guessing like a lot. We have a lot of military guys in here. They know you don't want to fight on two fronts if you don't have to. You'd rather be able to meet someone, contain them, and finish them off there. Now he has the possibility that he'd have to work on two fronts. Also, think about this, like psychologically. If, if, if uh, Judah hears this, if Jerusalem hears that the Egyptians are coming up, what do they think? What are they, what were they, who are they trusting in? The Egyptians. So if that's true, perhaps they would be encouraged that now they have someone to come save them. This makes sense for what's coming. All right, so does that make sense? We're, we're, Egypt is coming up. Maybe Israel, uh, Judah is being excited by this. They're going to have some hope. Um, Sennacherib doesn't have to worry about two battles. So Sennacherib sends a message. He writes, and we'll, we'll find out later, is that it's a letter. He sends this message out. The message is very much like the first one, except this time it's from the king specifically. It's not just the rhetoric of the Rabshakeh. Now this is from Sennacherib. Um, he says, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is verse 10. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, listen up. You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And you shall be delivered, please. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and, and continues on. Where are these kings? Where, what could they do? In verse, verse 13, he just goes on and talks about more and more. They, they came to nothing. Is it, are you really going to stand against me, the king of Assyria, the king who can squash everyone if I want to? Again, he doesn't want to have to get into conflict with them. He's more than willing to, and he has the power to. He doesn't want to, and he's telling them. You've got to think about this from, the, from Jerusalem's perspective. The people, they're getting rattled again in their cage. They're getting this, this sense that they, don't, they have no hope. There's nothing that they can do. Let's move on. What does Hezekiah do this time? Instead of tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth, um, and going to Isaiah, this is great. He goes to the house of the Lord. He lays the letter that he's received from Sennacherib before the Lord, and he prays to himself. He has a relationship. This is, we're seeing development in Hezekiah himself. As now he has, he, God is his God. And we'll see that through even the verbiage he uses, the, per, the pronouns he's using. It's us. It's I am part of this. We can, we come to you, God. Let's listen to what he says. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone. Of all the kings of the earth, you have made heavens and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O God. O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands. Like, he's admitting it. He knows. And, and have cast their gods into the fire. Well, listen to this little comment, though. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, hands wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. This is a response of faith and trust. He has no other place to turn. I mean, he could turn to Egypt and hope that that works out, or he could just rely on himself. But rather, not only does he know because of his first interaction and the, and, and the words of Isaiah, and you got to remember this too, he's heard the annoying prophet Isaiah all his life, <laughs> over and over and he's declaring to him, hope in God. Trust God. God is the one who will deliver you. You must trust him. He alone is God. 
And the beginning of, of Hezekiah's prayer is nothing, if you notice, it's nothing but praise. You alone are God. There is none like you. He comes to mock the living God. Um, and thrown above the cherubim. That's high, lofty language saying, there's no one like you, God. And we admit it. And we come to you, and we want you to do this. And now, remember, look at the reason. It's not the remnant of Israel, although that's, that's fine to ask for that. Why does he ask for it? For the sake of your name. So that the glory and the honor and anything would be pointed back to God. Not little Judah. Not little Jerusalem. Isaiah, who didn't call for, responds. Does he know somehow, like the prophets like have this like Bluetooth and they heard like his saying this? They're like, ah, finally, Hezekiah, let me, get, let me give you another message. And this message is incredible. He comes back, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Syria, this is the word the Lord God has spoken. I'm going to paraphrase this. It's incredible poetry. He's going he's to talk about Sennacherib. He's going to talk about that he was lofty and that he went and he used all this really cool language that he went up to the cypresses and cut the highest cypresses down and up to the mountains and he was able to dig wells and drink them and he was basically, he had reign over whatever he wanted to do. And he was able to do what he wanted to. But then God says, but you forgot something. I was the one that put you to do that. I was the one that controls all of these things. And you're in my direction, suckers. Don't you know? Don't you get it? And he says, Don't, do you not know that I'm in charge? And by the end he says, I will put my hook in your nose. And I will lead you back to your country. Syrians were famous for doing something like that. They would put hoses, hoses, nooks, <laughs> hooks in the noses of their prisoners. And lead them. Well, if you can concentrate after that, well done. Um, and they would lead them out. So God uses the same language back on them and says, I will lead you out the same way. I'll put my hook in your nose and get you out of here. Then he gives, uh, he gives Judah a sign, Jerusalem a sign. Now, we don't understand signs for all. I understand that. And it's hard for me to understand, but this is the sign he gives them. He says, this will be the sign. This year you will reap and harvest from whatever agriculture you do have. Remember, they're walled up inside their city. And what has the rest of Judah been done to them? They've been captured. They've been, their cities have been taken by, by Sennacherib. No agriculture is really going on here. <laughs> no one's out sowing the seed in when they're in danger of getting shot with an arrow. That's not happening. So this is, a, this is an important sign. The second part of the sign is that the second year, you won't sow, but you'll actually reap what came up from the leftovers of last year. This is not necessarily miraculous, like, oh my goodness, but the fact that they could subsist on it is somewhat ra- miraculous. That God would provide for them in this way. And the third year then, God will allow you to sow and reap and you will be back in three years, basically. This is not like, like, a, like a sign like, like a, uh, Gideon got. You know, he was like, oh, let me put out this thing. And, you know, if, if the dew's on it and it's not on the rest of it, then you're telling, you know, I, I can believe in you then. And then, then I can trust you to obey later on. Rather, this is not like that sign. This sign is actually confirming afterwards that what I was doing here is God's doing. Because something's going to happen. God's going to do something because he's already promised that he's going to save them. Something's going to happen. So he's saying, listen, to prove it to you, I will give you a sign. It's going gonna, it's gonna to validify all that I'm telling you right now. It's going to confirm it. And you will know that it was me who did this. The sign is not only a sign. Catch this too. It's multifaceted. It's also a picture of what he's using the same terms to talk about the way Judah will grow back. They will take root again. And they will come back and bear fruit. And they will not be wiped out. They will not be the end. It won't be the end for them. They will come back. 
So this is a sign also of life for, it, for Judah. Um, let's go on. I'm, I'm so silly to do two chapters. It's so much. But it's so awesome. I had, to, I had to do it for you guys. I just love it. So he says this. He gives him the sign. And then he says, um, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. This is from 32 if you want to look. Um, and out of, the, of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he has not come into his city, excuse me, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mountain against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God will act in salvation. He promises to. He doesn't back down. I'm going to do this. Trust me. I will do this for you. I will destroy Sennacherib. I will get him out of here for you. He won't shoot an arrow at you. He won't put up a mound against you. He can't do any of these things because I'm in charge. Trust me. I'm just going to read this so maybe I didn't make this up. It's not flowery. I just want you to get this. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. I don't know if you know how many people that is. That's a, thank you. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Um, the city of Richmond, I think, is right now 210,000. Think of almost all of Richmond's population being gone. The angel of the Lord slays 185,000. We should pay attention to this. <laughs> and like I can just imagine Fox News getting a hold of this, <laughs> you know. But I, I just, I, it, it must be incredible for them to think about, like who, who is reporting about this? Like this is monumental that 185,000 people are just dead. And there was no fight. There was no nothing. How do you, how do you, you know, account for this? We're told then the rest of this that he turns around. There's no arrows shot. There's no siege laid against Jerusalem. He goes back to Assyria and lives in Nineveh, it's talking about. Now, you should see this last verse, especially as like we, it's, it's more of an, a, a commentary on the rest of his life. We find it in the rest of his life. He's worshiping in his temple to his gods, his, his idols. And his two sons, the one who mocked the living God, is slain in the idol factory by his two sons in his own land. Just like Isaiah had the word from the Lord that he would be slain with the sword, he's slain with the sword. And the, and, and the irony, of course, like in all of that, is that he's in his own God's temple. Like the place that should be the most powerful, the one that should he should have ultimate like resources, right? And instead his sons, the closest to him, and that's historical too, but like they kill him and he's no more. That's... That's the end of this story for now. If I had a chance, I think I would spend like four hours preaching this because there's so much cool stuff in here. But I want us to really back up and see what this is all about. I asked those questions at the beginning because oftentimes, it's, I, don't, I said, do you know anyone? But I really mean, do you sometimes put your trust in your finances or maybe your smartness or yourself? or maybe the government to figure something out, or maybe my job that I can supply for myself and for my family. 
I often find that our biggest issue <laughs> is that we're not honest with ourselves in the, what, who we actually trust in. We are, we are saints of, a, of God. We are chosen and we are given Jesus Christ, rich in everything, and the number one resource giver is the one that we don't trust. Now, I understand. Not a, a lot of you don't have like a big army around your house, you know, having you stop what you're doing and say, you know, surrender. It's all the more important that you understand that this stuff can sneak in and we can miss how much we're not trusting God in the minutia of our days. And if you're not, let me tell you, and le- I'm, then, this I'm preaching to myself, if we are not doing that, we are believing the lie of Sennacherib. We're believing the lie of the Rabshakeh, that God doesn't have the power to do those things. And we should rather, we should, we should capitulate to them and, and, and just go that way. Because that's somehow better. I don't know if you, I, I skipped over a little bit because I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Sennacherib promises, and when the Rabshakeh talks about it too, he promises that you'll go to a good land and I'll take care of you and you're going to be fine. These are all lies. <laughs> he wants to conquer them just like conquering everyone else and use them for his benefit. That's all he wants to do. We have a good God who is in charge, who is ultimately in charge of all things and uses even the bad guys to do his work and then leads the bad guys out with the nook in their hose, you know. The one who's in charge is God. Our challenge today is to trust as Hezekiah placed his trust in God. Our challenge today is to look and see God for who he is. You have nothing. I have nothing. God has everything. Some trust in chariots and horses. And whatever that is for us today, whether it's financial stuff or whether it's how we end up, maybe our community, maybe don't misplace your trust. Our trust is in God alone. Remember that. And it should because he will act the way he seems, because he deems fit. And it will be for his glory, for his own sake, and for the sake of us in Jesus Christ. There's a lot more here that I'd love to handle and work through, but you'll have to go back and read it, so please do. Another quick plug, read your Bibles. It's awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We stopped to think today about um, this incredible, huge story like that, that seems so otherworldly to us, so different from what we do and from how we understand things that it seems like it's not... Uh, it's not applicable, like, well, I'm not worried about, you know, a huge army. God, may you arrest our hearts. The God that could destroy 185,000 overnight with the angel of the Lord can do anything. May we trust you, Father, in our, in our daily lives. We trust you for our salvation. Don't let us be so stupid, Lord, as to not trust you for our own well-being and for our family's sake and for our jobs and for our finances and for the way that we interact. Lord, may we trust you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.